This series of the Inside Oz podcast is brought to you by Dear Anxious, the new single from Max Feinstein. Dear Anxious, the new single from Max Feinstein, available for streaming now on Spotify, Apple Music, and all other streaming platforms. Yo, what up? Da-da-da-da. Yeah, boy, this is Lexington Alexander, a.k.a. Junior Pierce, and you're listening to, check it out, Inside Eyes. Get with it, and we out. not want to see my anger. My anger is massive, all-encompassing. Being accused of three bitches. Disloyal, dishonest, disrespectful. I don't disagree that there's evil in the world. I do disagree that we're powerless against it. You know, if I was a girl, you'd get tough. If you a girl, so you'd be butt-ass ugly. She's getting married? To a Bobby? No, no, not a Bobby, Tim. He's a guard. He guards the queen. Yeah, well, then I can see how they've got a lot in fucking common! Try to find the common thing that binds us all. Pride. Pride is the common thing. See, we are all of us back there. And welcome to Inside Oz, the original Oz Review Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Neil Thompson. Now I know what you're thinking. Neil, that's not your podcast slogan. What's going on? Well, since the podcast has been on break between series, there has been another Oz podcast launch. And I just want to take this moment to give a shout out to the guys from the Return to Oswald podcast, who are doing their own review of the show. Someone asked me recently if I was bothered about there being another Oz podcast. Absolutely not. There are hundreds of podcasts out there that cross over with their subjects. There's plenty of room for both of us. We follow each other on social media and we've had a little communication and wished each other nothing but success. So Derek, Scar and Brandon on Return to Oswald, best of luck with the show guys. I also want to take this time to say a huge thank you to everyone who has supported the show over the last couple of years. Series 3 was the most successful year yet, so thank you to each and every one of you. If you're new to the podcast and want to go back and catch up on the first three series, as well as the bonus episodes at looking at things other than ours, you can find all the previous episodes on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Stitcher Radio, Acast, Castbox, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever else you get your podcasts from. So with the 90s firmly in the rearview mirror, we're moving into the new millennium with today's episode, 
looking back at Series 4, Episode 1, A Cock and Ball Story. Similar to the previous three series, the show was off the air for around nine months, the Series 3 finale having been aired the previous September. During which time, The Sopranos continued to earn success for HBO, airing its second season starting in January, while Sex and the City had started to air its third season in June. A production delay to the third season of The Sopranos will directly impact us and this particular series in the near future, but we'll talk more about that another time. HBO's other main series this year was the six-episode miniseries The Corner, which aired from April 16th to May 21st. Another show with somewhat of a bearing on us around this time was NBC's Law & Order Special Victims Unit, which at this time was filming for its second season with Christopher Maloney returning in the lead role of Detective Elliot Stabler, as well as featuring a number of Maloney's Oz co-stars. Holding an 8.8 .8 on IMDb, the highest for a series premiere so far, the episode was written by Tom Fontana and directed by Adam Bernstein, directing his second episode of the show, and was originally broadcast on July 12, 2000, with the show retaining its Wednesday night slot. Also on this day, Gemstar merged with TV Guide in a deal worth approximately $14.2 billion, Chief Justice David A. Brock was impeached by the New Hampshire House of Representatives, the first action of its kind in the state since 1790, while in music there was no change on either the Billboard Hot 100 singles chart or the Billboard 200 albums chart with Enrique Iglesias holding on to the top spot on the singles chart for the third straight week with Be With You, while Eminem held on to the number one spot on the album chart for a fifth week with the Marshall Mathers LP. The name on the street for the Oswald State Correctional Facility, Level 4. You may have heard on the news that we've been having a little, uh, tension around here. Well, after 14 fun-filled days of sitting in your cell, smelling your roomy's farts, a man is ready to forgive everybody for everything, just to come up for air. So Act 1, as is tradition, gets underway with Augustus bringing us up to speed on the goings-on in Oz since we were last there mentioning that they've been suffering some racial tensions and have been on lockdown for the last two weeks, himself having been in the hole for the same amount of time, and it was his indiscretion with the Hustler magazine which acted as the tipping point. We see that Adebisi still has the gun that Clayton left in his possession as he tucks it into his underpants. I hope to God that thing's got a safety on it, otherwise if he sits down the wrong way it's going to blow his cock off, and probably not in the way that Adebisi might like. Murphy puts out the call for certain inmates to step out of their pods, including Adebisi and Arif, who share an embrace, as well as Saeed and others, who are told to get in line because they're off to the cafeteria. We see a new CO work in M-City, Officer Joseph Howard, who goes uncredited. We also cut to Genpop, where we see another new CO working, a female this time, Officer Andrea Phelan. More on her a little later on. Some of the inmates in Genpop are also being called to the meeting in the cafeteria, and Schillinger, in the only way that he can, notices that it only seems to be the black inmates who are on the move. Cut to the cafeteria where Leo is attempting to address the gathered inmates, but much like a bunch of school kids, they're not listening and just chatting amongst themselves, so Leo has to call in the sort so that he can deliver his address. The presence of the sort does actually make the inmates quiet down and take their seats, it puts them over really strong, 
But if the inmates wanted to, they could have easily taken the sort guys, because there was only seven of them. The inmates had them completely outnumbered. Leo addresses the fact that for the last two weeks they've been in 24-hour lockdown, which we've all had a taste of what that feels like following the events of 2020. He says that they all know what caused the lockdown, so he won't go into specifics, but he's called them all here to tell them that it depends on them as to when the lockdown ends, and that he is determined to go back to a regular routine. But that if there is one incidence of race-related violence, and it was interesting that he specified race-related, he knows that he'll never stop the violence completely, that he'll lock everyone away 24-7 for the rest of their lives. Ernie Hudson was really great in this scene. It's one of those scenes where Leo isn't just doing his usual trick of doing things for the greater good. He's actually putting his foot down on this situation, and his whole tone of voice commands respect, signified by the look from Augustus when threatened with permanent lockdown, which in and of itself is an empty threat. There's no way that Leo would be able to enforce that, nor would Devlin allow him, as we've seen previously that he usually wants lockdowns ended as quickly as possible. The reveal of Leo giving the same speech to the white inmates as well as the black inmates is one of my favourite pieces of direction that we've seen so far as well. And it's just a simple pan around from Leo to the inmates, but it's really well done. As the black inmates leave their meeting, Kenny is complaining to Adebisi about his lack of action from the plan that he proposed, but Adebisi is telling him to have patience. Adebisi also seems to have gotten himself a new black hat, a tried and tested cliche of signifying him as a villain. As the white inmates leave their meeting, we get the point of view of Schillinger and Robson, who are placing the blame squarely on the black inmates, thinking that they're up to something. So whereas with the previous two series premieres, Augustus has had a lot more to say about what had happened during that passage of time, that's much shorter this time round, which in storyline terms makes complete sense, because he wouldn't be privy to that information because he's just spent the last two weeks in the hole. Instead, we get a callback to Hamid Khan being on life support from the new newsman, played here by Peter Benson, replacing previous newsman Rick Don. A New York native, Peter's acting debut came on TV for the sitcom Hi Honey, I'm Home, where he played Mike Duff for 14 episodes between 1991 and 1992, while in 1995 he appeared as Chipster Williams in a video guide for Microsoft's Windows 95 operating system. In 1996, Peter made his stage acting debut appearing in State Fair at the Music Box Theatre as well as earning credits in 1997 for An American Daughter at the Court Theatre and Little Me at Criterion Centre Stage Right in 1998. That same year, Peter earned credits for an appearance in the Michael Douglas movie A Perfect Murder, while in 1999 he appeared in Eyes Wide Shut, the final film by iconic director Stanley Kubrick, before appearing here on ours. With the news revealed that Sadia Khan has won a fight to get Hamid taken off of life support, Murphy approaches Saeed, telling him that McManus wants to speak with him. The family's in with Khan now, saying their final farewells. And they've asked that you say a prayer over the body just before the end. Bearing in mind everything that happened between Khan and I, I'm on what they asked for me. In addition to saying a prayer over the body, similar to reading the last rites in the Christian faith, an Islamic funeral also has a number of other rituals including bathing the body using heated water, which should occur as close to death as possible and is commonly carried out by members of the deceased's immediate family, as well as the shrouding, which in the case of males sees the body wrapped in three white wrapping sheets, as well as two smaller sheets to cover the genitals, and afterwards lies in state for a period, 
while the actual burial would see the grave perpendicular towards Mecca, with the body placed in the grave laying on its right side and placed on three fist-sized spheres of soil placed beneath the head, the chin and the shoulder, with the lowering of the body carried out by the deceased next of kin. In Sunni Islam, following a funeral would be a three-day period of mourning, while widows observe an extended period of mourning lasting four months and ten days, known as the Adar, during which time the widow, Sadia Khan in this case, is forbidden to remarry or interact with a man with whom she could, except in cases of emergency. This is done to ensure that the widow isn't pregnant with the deceased child prior to remarrying. Said heads back to his pod and meets up with the rest of the Muslim group. Arif tells him that with Amid gone, they need someone to lead them. Grabbing his old clothes out of his footlocker, Said says that he bets he knows who Arif has in mind, that being Arif himself. Confirming his intentions, Arif asks whether or not Said will oppose him, but Said tells him no, stating that he's lost his taste for power and that he hopes that Arif will use his power more wisely than he did. So with Said seemingly back within the Muslim group in the wake of Amid's death, even though he isn't their leader, this puts the Muslims back on four members within MC. So as we discussed previously, McManus' rule of three definitely seems to have gone out of the window, and we'll see another example of this later when two more inmates return to MC. We see Saeed carrying out his duties on Amid, saying a prayer and washing Amid's hands and forehead, as well as cutting back to MC where Cyril is asking Ryan whether or not Hamid is getting any better, Ryan saying that he'll be fine in about ten minutes, and demands that Cyril go to sleep. Cutting back to the hospital again, Saeed asks for Amid to be given peace and to be pardoned, and then motions to Gloria to turn off the life support machine, Amid flatlining more or less instantly. In reality, it would take Amid a few minutes to pass away, so this is for dramatic effect more than anything else. In a similar situation, a patient who isn't brain-dead would pass away usually within 24 hours, as they're still breathing under their own power, unlike Hamid, whose breathing was being done for him via ventilator. We cut back to M-City where we get a dream sequence in which Cyril is visited by Hamid and intercut with flashbacks of their fight. Standing in the boxing ring, Hamid tells Cyril that he killed him, to which Cyril says that he didn't mean to. Hamid asks, what about him? Pointing towards the ring bell operator, portrayed by the spirit of Preston Nathan. Hamid tells Cyril that they're never going to leave him and are going to be in his head forever, the ring bell chiming repeatedly, as Cyril jolts awake, screaming in terror. Ryan jumps down from his bunk to comfort his brother, and the following day goes to meet with Sister Pete, telling her about the nightmares that Cyril has been having, and that they need to try a different medication because the Valium that he's currently on isn't working. Pete identifies that Cyril's nightmares are rooted in his guilt for the deaths that he's caused, and the only way to cure it is to alleviate that guilt. She admits that in the case of Amid, that might not be possible, but in the case of Preston Nathan, it might be worth a shot to have Cyril take part in the victim-offender interaction program, saying that it will give Cyril the chance to express remorse for the killing. Ryan tells her to go ahead and sign Cyril up, but Pete wants Ryan involved too, what with him being the one that set everything in motion with his obsession with Gloria, and that she isn't prepared to ask Gloria or Preston's parents to be involved unless both O'Reilly brothers are participating. Ryan sporting another new haircut this series, says that he hasn't got any problem with that, and leaves the office as we cut to the hospital, where Gloria is flat out refusing Pete's request. 
She's checking the heartbeat of a patient who's the spitting image of Mr. Magoo, and I'm not convinced that this wasn't some kind of waxwork, as he doesn't move a muscle the whole time that he's on screen. Gloria admits to Pete that she can't even bring herself to be in the same room as either Ryan or Cyril, and that they make her skin crawl. But Pete tells her that this will give her a chance to put the past to rest. Gloria saying that she doesn't give a shit about whether or not Cyril sleeps any better, and joking but perhaps not joking about quadrupling his Valium prescription to make him sleep permanently. Taking the role of Mother Hen, Pete tells Gloria that this isn't about Cyril, and that deep down she knows that, and that the interaction could not only give Preston's parents, but Gloria herself to have some form of closure. Feeling that she gets no respect as a female doctor, Gloria says that she isn't taking any shit from anyone anymore and walks away leaving Pete angrily smacking away at a desk. You can see that she was really hopeful that Gloria would be willing to talk. Cut to the kitchen where Ryan sees Pete walking by and asks what Gloria had to say. Pete tells him that it's a no for now and that maybe in time she'll change her mind, but Ryan seems concerned about Cyril, which we all know isn't always truly the case. He's usually only ever out for himself, and Pete says that for now all they can do is increase Cyril's medication. Pete leaves and Ryan heads back to work, but he has a plan with which to maybe get the chance to speak with Gloria himself. In order to do this though, he has to resort to some drastic measures, and he grabs a knife and slices his hand. And this isn't a minor cut that he gives himself, he proper goes for it. The amount of blood here makes it look like he nearly chops his hand in half. Chucky comes over asking what happened, and I absolutely loved how blasé the rest of the inmates were to Ryan cutting himself. They did not give a shit, and Adam Easy even laughs at Ryan for doing it. Well, I'm not prepared to put it to the test, I mean, feel free to try this out yourselves and let me know how you get on, but I'm pretty sure that a cut to the hand like this wouldn't produce the amount of blood splatter that we see here. Again, a bit of a case of dramatic effect being employed here. There's a bit of a goof here too, where if you look at the shot where Ryan covers the wound after Cyril shouts to him, you can see the tube that they used for this effect. Look at Dean Winter's left hand, it's underneath his wrist as he moves his hand out of the shot. Another way they could have done this would have been to maybe have a blood pack on the underside of the knife which Dean could have popped with his fingers. Because if you think about it, if you were cutting into your hand, your fingers would naturally tense and curl up and would have also produced a more realistic amount of blood as opposed to the mini-massacre that we see here. So Ryan's whisked off to the hospital to get his hand seen to, but he grabs the opportunity to talk to a passing Gloria, with a flashback of Amid hitting the canvas, closing out Act 1. You know, I asked Saeed to tell me about last night, about Hamid Khan's death. Saeed told me they wrapped Khan's body in a clean white cloth and then added perfume and prayed. O'Reilly. You don't care about Hamid Khan. No, I do. I don't know. I just wanted to make sure the fucking thing got done right. Hey, my brother won that fight fair and square. Act 2 gets underway with a bunch of lads cramming into Augustus' box, which seems to have made a return to the middle of M-City, as our narrator explains about the US prison population reaching 2 million inmates, equating that to the populations of Vienna or Houston. According to Eurostat, Augustus is actually overstating the population of Vienna, as in 2000 the Austrian capital had a population of just over 1.5 million, while according to the United States Census Bureau, Houston had a population of around 1,977,000 at this time. According to 2018 figures, 
Houston's population has increased to a little over 2.3 million, while according to Eurostat's 2019 figures, Vienna had increased its population to just under 1.9 million. The US prison population has remained in line with Houston, seeing it grow to around 2.3 million as well, which I've got to admit isn't as much of an increase as I thought it would be. I thought it would have been much higher than that. Cut to solitary, where Claire is making her rounds, checking on Bevilacqua, as well as Miguel, who is having a wank at the back of his cell. And he looks really disappointed to have been interrupted. Well, you would be, wouldn't you? Claire soldiers on, checking on William Giles, en route to checking on Stuart McCullum, who she finds on the floor of his cell covered in blood, with chunks of his arms and legs missing. Claire calls McCullum a piece of shit for the amount of paperwork she's going to have to do, and gives him a swift kick, which was really funny. Stuart McCollum here is played by, and I use that term very loosely, by Tom Farrell. I'm not going to give him an introduction as obviously this is all that we see of him, and we have a lot of new characters joining the show in this episode, some of whom I'll cover today and others I'll come back to another time, but Tom Farrell, thanks for stopping by, even if it was just for a brief moment. Cut to a staff meeting where Leo informs everyone that McCollum's death has been ruled a suicide by the medical examiner. McCullum having died due to biting off chunks of muscle over the course of a week and bleeding to death. Pete proclaims, Sweet Jesus. As Murphy says that it's like cannibalism, but Man is correcting him saying that a cannibal is someone who eats someone else's flesh. Murphy asks what you call someone who eats their own, and rather than admit that he doesn't know, McManus just calls them inventive. The act of eating oneself, known as autosarcophagy, although it's more often than not simply referred to as self-cannibalism or autocannibalism, can be traced as a crime as far back as the 17th century, when Hungarian noblewoman Elizabeth Bathory was alleged to have made servants consume their own flesh, while in 1998 the Lambeth Daily reported that arrested young people in the Sudan had had their left ears removed and were forced to consume them upon their release. As well as appearing in Norse mythology, in which the world serpent Jormungandr is biting its own tail, autosarcophagy has also been referenced numerous times in popular culture, including George R. R. Martin's The Clash of Kings, two separate Treehouse of Horror episodes of The Simpsons, Mel Brooks' Star Wars parody Spaceballs, in which Pizza the Hut is said to have eaten himself after getting locked inside his own car, as well as being a favourite method of torture by Hannibal Lecter. Examples of the practice appearing in the novel Hannibal, and the movie and TV series of the same name. In the world of heavy metal, autosarcophagy has been referenced in music videos, such as Slipknot's The Devil in Eye, in which band member Sid Wilson is shown eating his own arm, while Rammstein's Mind Tile tells of a man who cuts off and cooks his penis, consuming his member as part of a candlelit dinner. It's also the name of an Oregon-based death metal band who I stumbled across on Spotify recently. Steering the conversation away from eating themselves, Ray says that this is the third suicide in solitary in the last two years, with Gloria also referencing Miguel's attempted suicide. Those successful suicides must have been for unnamed characters, because I can't think who they might have been. The only thing that comes close to it in solitary is Miguel's attempted hanging. Ray says that they need to do something about conditions in that unit, which Claire takes offence to by saying, it's solitary for Christ's sake, what do you want us to do, serve high fucking tea? McManus sticks up for Ray, not only because he probably agrees with him, but much like with Keller saying that you don't swear at nuns, McManus obviously doesn't like the way that Claire is speaking to Ray as a man of the cloth. Claire fires back with some more sarcasm as Leo says that he agrees with her, saying that the only way to deal with that type of inmate is to sit on them. 
While he admits that he won't get any arguments out of him, Murphy suggests that there may still be a compromise, and details how other maximum security prisons have given inmates in solitary controlled recreation time for an hour every few days, with Pete also chiming in about its benefits and the increased incentive to behave. Gloria thinks that it's worth a shot, but Claire seems reluctant and starts to ask for volunteers, Leo finally telling her to wind a neck in and agreeing with Gloria about giving it a try. We see the solitary inmates chained together forming a chain gang as we cut to the crime flashback of Louis Bevilacqua, who, as we've discussed previously, is played by George Aguilar. An eventful flashback this one, Bevilacqua is driving along, doing that thing that wannabe gangsters do where they put their drink in a brown paper bag, listening to Buju Banton's Wannabe Loved, which I think is the first time that licensed music has been used on the show and getting a blowjob from his female passenger. Things quickly go south for him as another car pulls up alongside and starts shooting, the passenger taking a couple of shots as the two cars collide, and the one that started the shooting ends up flipping onto its roof. A good Samaritan runs in to help that car's passenger, but before he can pull them to safety, Bevilacqua comes over and pumps him full of lead. Bevilacqua is convicted of murder in the second degree and illegal possession of a firearm, and is sentenced to 25 years, up for parole in 12. Cut to the gym where the seven-man chain gang is walking in a very small circle on the basketball court. Bevilacqua asks Miguel what he's in solitary for, Miguel telling him that this time it's because he killed Carlo Ricardo, who Bevilacqua claims was his cousin. The conversation is cut short by Claire, as we then see the men placed back in their respective cells. Bevilacqua grabs a small notepad and pencil and starts to write a note to the other Latinos in MC, where we cut to as Chico reads the note in which Bevilacqua asks whether or not El Cid wants him to finish the job that Carlos started. El Cid gives the order, saying that he wants this apinga dead, apinga being a Latin American insult meaning prick. Cut back to solitary on what must be a different day as Claire calls for the men in the unit, and we see Bevilacqua place a shank in the back of his trousers, and they head back to the gym for another walk. Hey Aquaman, I got a funny story to tell you about. You know, the man started giving me a hassle about who raped his daughter. So he put me in solitary. I told him Carlo did it. Carlo wasn't there. Yeah, no. What do you think will happen when Glenn finds out you raped this kid? As Bevilacqua reaches for the shank, Giles spots him and grabs it himself stabbing Bevilacqua in the neck, and then stabbing Miguel in the kidney area. Pete and Leo head down to Solitary to speak with Giles, Leo informing Pete that Bevilacqua is dead, and that Miguel is in intensive care. Asking whether or not Miguel will make it, Leo tells her that he will, failing to hide his feelings, admitting that it's unfortunate. Claire reads from her book of sarcasm once again, saying that she hopes that this puts an end to wreck time, with Leo saying that it does, but that she's also been transferred out of the unit. She opens up Giles' cell so that Leo and Pete can talk with him, and as per fucking usual, Giles is speaking in riddles. He rambles on about an incident in which he admitted to his mum about stealing cookies from the jar, and when Pete asks him what this has to do with stabbing Bevilacqua and Miguel, he says, I kill but never lie, never ever lie which as we discussed before when Ray was investigating Sam Hughes' death, Giles, for all his faults, is as credible as they come. 
Back in M City, Chico informs El Cid that Miguel is still alive, but just barely. As El Cid tells him to make sure that Miguel doesn't make it out of the hospital ward, calling Chico pendejo. That's an interesting insult from El Cid, as here it's used to call Chico an arsehole, but its literal translation means pubic hair. The scene closes on a shot of Miguel in the hospital ward, reminiscent of the very start of the show when he was stabbed the first time. Oz isn't the only place to put an end to recreation time for solitary inmates, as between 1993 and 2016, Colorado State Penitentiary barred outdoor recreation, only allowing the inmates out of their cells for around five hours per week, similar to what we've seen in this episode with the inmates only going so far as the gym. Donnie Lowe, an inmate of the prison for two years during this time while serving an 11-year sentence, filed a lawsuit alleging violation of the Eighth Amendment, in which excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted and even petitioned the Supreme Court to hear his case. While courts have recognised that solitary confinement raises concerns pertaining to both mental and physical health, the Supreme Court denied Lowe's case, stating that because he was still receiving out-of-cell exercise, it was not deemed unconstitutional, and the case was dismissed in October 2018. Fade up on the next scene down in the mailroom, where Schillinger is opening up a letter addressed to him from his cousin which contains a photo of his two boys from when they were young and that they've heard about what happened to Andrew. Robson, who's now working down in the mailroom with Schillinger, says that it can be hard to get over losing a child, with Schillinger saying that it makes him miss Hank, his other son, that much more. You'll recall, of course, the storyline of Beecher trying to make amends with Schillinger and offering to help locate Hank, being set up at the end of the previous series. Saying that he hasn't heard from Hank since he came to Oz, which is around eight years at this point, Schillinger says that you see all the possibilities in kids when they're that young, and then throws the letter and the photograph into the trash. And with that, they're off to M-City to hand out the other prisoners' mail, which includes a subscription renewal letter from TV Guide for Rebido, and a letter for Beecher, which Schillinger hand-delivers. What Schillinger gives him, though, is an empty envelope, because they had to confiscate the contents. Beecher asks what could possibly be so bad about a letter from his grandmother, Schillinger pointing out that if he tells him, then he'd know. I mean, he's not wrong, that is a good point, but this is just another example of Schillinger fucking with Beecher every opportunity that he gets. He hasn't gained anything from this, literally the only time that he and Beecher interact are in situations like this, or by chance meetings in the cafeteria or the gym. So Schillinger is obviously just doing this for his own amusement. In a rare interaction between the two, Ray runs into Beecher in Sister Pete's office asking if she's around, but Beecher says that she's gone into town to speak to a psychiatrist, who she's been seeing since considering leaving the convent. Clearly unaware of this, Ray looks pretty annoyed that Pete is speaking to someone else rather than coming to him, and Beecher even says that he thought Ray knew, but he also admits that it's none of his business. Changing the conversation, Ray asks how Beecher is doing, asking if he's had any more trouble with Schillinger. Ray being another one of the few characters to pronounce Schillinger's name correctly. Beecher says that there'll always be trouble between he and Schillinger, at least until one of them ends up in the morgue, which is a line that we'll revisit someday in the future. For now though, Ray says that while they've caused each other a massive amount of pain, he believes that there's got to be a way that Beecher and Schillinger can call a truce. He tells Beecher that he needs to forgive Schillinger, with Beecher saying that he already tried that, and nearly died because of it, 
and the only reason he's still alive is because of Keller. Asking how he told Schillinger the last time, Beecher saying he told him to his face, Ray suggests that he might need to try a more subtle approach this time round. Seeking the advice of his friends, Beecher asks Saeed and Keller for ideas, Saeed remaining optimistic that Schillinger will see it as an act of kindness and reconciliation, but Keller is far from convinced, and tells Beecher that he's not going to do anything for Schillinger. And the tone in which he says that really establishes that Keller sees himself as the dominant one in their relationship. He doesn't advise Beecher not to do anything, he tells him that he won't. Beecher, on the other hand, asks if Keller is giving him an order, almost as if he's calling Keller's bluff and that he obviously considers their relationship equal. While his relationship with Keller is completely different to the one that he had with Schillinger, if you can even call that a relationship, Beecher did enter into this one willingly, and as such isn't prepared to be the submissive one in it. Going against Keller's order, Beecher meets for a visit from his father, Harrison Beecher, played by Edward Herman. Born July 21st, 1943 in Washington, D.C. and growing up in Gross Point, Michigan, Edward graduated from Bucknell University in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania in 1965, and studied acting at London's Royal Academy of Music and Dramatic Arts as part of a Fulbright Fellowship. Beginning his acting career in 1971 with an uncredited role in the movie Lady Liberty, Edward made his theatre debut in November that same year in Moon Children at the Arena Stage in Washington, D.C., and made his Broadway debut when the show transferred to New York City the following year, running for 16 performances at the Royal Theatre and appearing with Oz alumni Kevin Conway. In 1975, Edward was nominated for the Joseph Jefferson Award for his role in The Cherry Orchard for the show's run at the Goodman Theatre in Chicago, Illinois. Edward's first recurring role on TV also came in 1975, appearing for 11 episodes as Richard Palmer in Beacon Hill on CBS. In 1976, Edward portrayed 32nd President of the United States Franklin D. Roosevelt in ABC's miniseries Eleanor and Franklin, a role which he would reprise in the following years Eleanor and Franklin, The White House Years, both of which earned him Emmy Award nominations, and again in the 1982 film adaptation of Annie. 1976 also saw Edward return to the Broadway stage at the Vivian Beaumont Theatre, appearing as Frank Gardner in Mrs. Warren's Profession winning the Tony Award for Best Featured Actor in a Play, and once again appeared with another Oz alumni, Milo O'Shea. While in 1977, Edward appeared on TV as legendary New York Yankees first baseman Lou Gehrig in A Love Affair, the Eleanor and Lou Gehrig story. With Broadway credits in the first half of the 1980s for the Philadelphia story in Plenty, for which he gained a Tony Award nomination and along with recurring roles on TV in Sent Elsewhere, The Lawrenceville Stories and Concealed Enemies as part of American Playhouse, as well as movie credits including The Lost Boys and Overboard in 1987, Edward collaborated with Diane Weist as theatre directors on Not About Heroes, performing at the Williamstown Theatre Festival in Massachusetts, and returned to the New York stage in March 1988, starring alongside Al Pacino and Martin Sheen in Julius Caesar as part of the New York Shakespeare Festival. Edward made his London stage debut in November that same year, appearing alongside Alec Guinness at the Comedy Theatre, now known as the Harold Pinter Theatre, in the Roland Air-directed A Walk in the Woods. Returning to the Broadway stage in 1989 for a one-week engagement in Love Letters at the Edison Theatre, Edward also earned TV credits the following year for So Proud We Hail, as well as Sweet Poison and Fire in the Dark in 1991. A classic car enthusiast, Edward became the spokesman for Dodge commercials in 1992, 
a position he held for nine years, and was a regular master of ceremonies at the Pebble Beach Concourse de Elegance in California. In the 1990s, Edward earned movie credits in 1994 for Richie Rich and Nixon in 1995, while on TV in 1996 he appeared in the fifth season of Homicide Life on the Street in the episode Emmy, Myself and I. In 1997, Edward narrated the series Liberty, The American Revolution on PBS, as well as landing the recurring role as Anderson Pearson in ABC's The Practice. In 1998, Edward made his final appearance on the theatre stage, appearing between March and May at Criterion's centre stage right in the Deep Blue Sea appearing with an Oz alumni for the final time in the form of Oleg Krupa, while in 1999 he narrated the PBS documentary series Nova before appearing here on Oz. So Beecher hugs his dad when he arrives, and while this is the first time that we've seen his dad on screen, he says that Beecher looks terrific, with Beecher saying, better than the last time you were here. Edward Herman as well, a towering figure of a man, he must be 6'4", maybe even 6'5", an absolute giant of a man. I've, uh, I put some more money in your account. Thank you. Not much else I can do, is there? Well, actually, Dad, there is. Um, one of the other prisoners, Bern Schillinger, had two sons. His oldest, Andrew, was, uh, died recently. The other, Hank, well, Burns lost track of him. They're estranged. I was hoping one of the PIs from the law firm could do some digging. You want to locate the boy? This is all the information I've been able to pull together so far. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll put Swanee on this. He's the best private investigator we have. Thank you, Dad. Toby, I'm very proud of you. <laughs> proud? Well, here you are living in hell with your own problems, and you're trying to help a fellow inmate to reunite with his last surviving son. You are a remarkable human being. Yeah. I'm remarkable, all right. Back in M-City, Beecher meets back up with Keller, but resists a kiss when Keller leans in. Keller thinking that Beecher smells sexy, the scent of Harrison's aftershave lingering on Beecher. Keller grabs Beecher by the dick. Horrifying Rebido gives a look of, steady on, mate, as Beecher tells him that they need to talk, and they head back to their pod. Admitting that he knows how Keller will react, Beecher tells Keller that he's asked his dad to help locate Hank. Keller tells Beecher that they agreed not to do that, but Beecher says that they didn't agree to anything, and Keller asks why he's decided to help Schillinger, Beecher saying that he's doing it to help them as a couple, to put them in a position of not living in fear every day, but Keller thinks that's what life is all about, Beecher telling him that it doesn't have to be. Saying that he wishes he could wipe away the past most times, along with everything that he's done and said, Beecher hopes that doing this for Schillinger could allow for the tables to turn. Laughing at him, Keller asks if Beecher sees himself as Tinkerbell, and asks if he's wishing on a star. But Beecher says that he's partially responsible for Andrew's death, and that he needs to atone for that, and that Keller should do the same. Keller says that Oz didn't make Beecher a bitch, he was born one as Beecher starts to walk away, not prepared to argue. Grabbing Beecher to come back, Beecher smacks Keller in the face, leaving him bloody and possibly with a broken nose, as both men try to strangle the other. As Beecher says that he'll kill Keller, officers run in to break up the fight and ask who started it, Beecher admitting that it was him, 
so he's off to spend some time in the hall as a result, as Saeed gives Keller a disapproving look. We close on Beecher in the hall, hunkered against the wall, saying that he's nobody's bitch, to close out Act 2. While I absolutely love the period of the show where Beecher went a bit crazy and would speak in nursery rhymes, I'd say this wipe-away-the-pass bit of dialogue is probably my favourite piece of acting from Lee Tegerson on the show so far. I completely believe that he wants to put every sordid, horrific moment that's occurred between himself and Schillinger in the last few years behind him as he looks towards a new future, especially with his parole coming up, but we'll talk about that in a future episode. I know how you'll react. Jesus, what? I asked my father to locate Schillinger's other son. We discussed this. Yeah, yeah, we agreed. No. We didn't agree. Oh, so now all of a sudden you want to help that fuck Schillinger, huh? No, I want to help us. You and me. I want to stop living every fucking day in fear. Hey, that's what being alive is all about, pal. It doesn't have to be. Chris, sometimes. Most times. I wish I could wipe away the past. I wish I could wipe away everything I've done. Everything I've said that hurt the people I love, I wish I could look at people and not see all the hurt they caused me. And maybe, maybe this is the way to start making that wish come true. Are you listening to yourself, man? What do you think about? You're wishing upon a star? I'm partially responsible for Andrew Schillinger's death. I need to atone for that. So should you. You know what? Oz didn't make you a bitch. You were born one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. then and our news reporter is back once again dropping off some exposition about Shirley losing her baby under what I described as suspicious circumstances, perhaps indicative of her following through on her promise to destroy the baby if she wasn't granted an abortion. With Shirley no longer pregnant it means that she's on her way back to Oz with Devlin having retracted his previous decision to revoke her death sentence. So Shirley arrives back on death row and she's joined on the island of Misfit Toys by Nat Ginsberg who's moved into what used to be Shirley's cell, as well as new inmates Mark Miles and Moses Diel. Shirley tries to switch cells with Nat so that she can have her old space, but Nat isn't willing to give up the cell, saying that they're all spread out. Shirley says that she'll make it worth Nat's while, but it's safe to say that Shirley is barking up the wrong tree on that one. Not that that puts her off, saying that Nat would be surprised at what she has to offer, seemingly very confident in her... abilities, let's call them. Lepresti tells her to get inside a new cell, and a slight correction here from an episode in Series 3 where I referred to Lepresti as Glenn. He's actually listed as Len Lepresti, but in that scene, I'm positive that Diane calls him Glenn. 
Introducing herself to her new death row buddies, Shirley first speaks to Mark, who tells her to suck his dick and calls her a cunt, and then asks Moses whether or not he has any kind words for a stranger, and whether or not he's the one to lead them out of Egypt into the Promised Land. We then get the crime flashback of Moses Dael. Prisoner number 00D718, Moses Dial, convicted February 3rd, 2000, on two counts of murder in the first degree. Sentence, death. So Moses busts in while these two folks are going at it to the sound of Marvin Gaye's Mercy Mercy Me, the ecology. And he shoots both of them dead, but not before planting a massive kiss on the screaming woman, and is convicted of first degree murder so it's straight to death row for him. Mercy Mercy Me is taken from Marvin Gaye's 1971 album What's Going On, the second single from that album. A great song, and while a very popular song, it's probably behind the album's title track and some of his earlier hits in terms of popularity. Turns out though that this woman he shot was cheating on Moses, with her own husband, but she told Moses that it was all over between them, so he figured that he could move in on the husband's territory saying that he doesn't fuck with another man's wife because he has principles, something which Shirley says she loves in a man as the scene ends. Mark Miles is played by Michael Quill, who I'll introduce properly in a future episode, while Moses Dial is played by Eric King. Born April 21st, 1963 in Washington, D.C. and the son of a police officer, Eric attended the Duke Ellington High School of Performing Arts, as well as studying at Tucson University in Baltimore, Maryland. Making his acting debut in 1983 on TV in NBC's miniseries Kennedy, Eric appeared in an episode of Spencer for Hire in 1986, before moving into film acting the following year, appearing in the crime thriller Street Smart as well as the slasher movie Tomorrow's a Killer. With mostly minor roles in film throughout the early 1990s, Eric's first recurring roles on TV include three episodes of CBS 1991 miniseries Golden Years, 1992's The Round Table on NBC, where he appeared for seven episodes, and in 1993 he landed the role of investigator Bobby Davidson in ABC's Missing Persons, where he appeared for 17 episodes. With credits on TV for shows such as Diagnosis Murder, Matlock and NYPD Blue, as well as 1996's Kindred the Embraced, Eric returned to film acting in 1997, appearing in the mockumentary and Alana Smithy film Burn Hollywood Burn, as well as 1998's Desperate Measures and 1999's True Crime. In 2000, Eric appeared in Things You Can Tell Just By Looking At Her, in the segment Love Waits For Caffeine, which was screened at the Sundance Film Festival, before appearing here on ours. Back in M-City, the TV is showing a campaign film for Devlin, saying that when he first ran for governor, crime was out of control, but he went to work and as a result fought for three strikes and you're out, so that violent offenders remain locked up. Rebido can't believe that Devlin's running again after all the crap that he's pulled, but Boos Malice says that Devlin has his vote because things are better now, and that life has improved across the state since Devlin took office, citing an improved economy and a fallen crime rate. Calling Boos Malice on his bullshit, Augustus reminds him that a convicted felon forfeits their right to vote, something which Boos Malice seemed unaware of. He's okay with that though because he never used to vote anyway, as the film ends with the slogan, The Courage to Lead. 
A common misconception is that once a person is convicted of a felony in the US, their voting rights are gone forever, which isn't necessarily the case. Voting rights are in some form revoked during a period of incarceration, otherwise known as disenfranchisement, in 48 states, the exception being Vermont and Maine. In 18 states, including Colorado, Illinois, Maryland, New Jersey and California, who passed their bill on the day of the 2020 presidential election, disenfranchisement ends after an inmate is released, while the states of New York and Connecticut end disenfranchisement after incarceration and a parole period if applicable. 18 other states, including Georgia, Kansas, Louisiana, Minnesota and Missouri, require not only the incarceration and or parole period to be complete, but also that of any probation sentence, while in eight states, including Alabama, Florida, Nebraska and Tennessee, disenfranchisement is imposed pertaining to the details of the crime, while individual petitions are required for any offence in two states, those being Kentucky and Virginia. Cut to Leo's office where he is meeting with Wendy Schultz, Devlin's campaign manager, who was played by Dana Reeve. Born March 17, 1961 in Teaneck, New Jersey and growing up in Greenborough, New York, Dana graduated from Ridgemont High School in 1979. After spending her junior year studying at London's Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, Dana graduated from Vermont's Middlebury College Summa Cum Laude and Phi Beta Kappa in English Literature in 1984, before undertaking graduate studies in acting at the California Institute of the Arts in Valencia, California. Making her TV acting debut in 1983 on the soap opera Loving, Dana married Superman actor Christopher Reeve in 1992, and also appeared in the 1995 movie Above Suspicion, as well as appearing on the theatre stage. In 1995, Christopher Reeve suffered life-changing injuries following a horse-riding accident. As a result, Dana scaled back most of her career to care for her husband, but would make appearances in Law and & Order and Feds, as well as appearing in the comedy More to Love on Broadway at the Eugene O'Neill Theatre, before appearing here on Oz. Admitting that he's intrigued to have received a call from the governor's campaign manager, Leo asks Wendy to take a seat, and she says that she isn't going to dance around the issue. The current lieutenant governor, Frank Feely, who with a name like that sounds like someone you should keep your kids away from, isn't going to run for re-election because of a cancer diagnosis. To replace him, Devlin has asked Wendy to draw up a shortlist of new candidates, and she wants Leo to be on the ticket. She admits that while Leo and Devlin have had their differences, both men are ultra-conservative and agree on most issues. Leo asks whether or not this has anything to do with Alva Case running against Devlin, Case promising that he would do back in Series 2, which Wendy admits that it does, and that the administration's reputation is tarnished among black voters but she says that Leo would make a great lieutenant governor. Or at least that's what she's telling Leo, she could just be in cell mode. Leo asks if this is her offering him the position, but she assures him that it's just for the shortlist and that the convention is still two months away, so Leo would need to increase his public profile between now and then. She says that she's glad that Leo is interested, Leo saying that he hasn't said that he is, the scene closing with Wendy saying, oh yes you have. And he really has. The fact that he's even entertained the idea of speaking to Wendy in the first place seems to have bent Leo's arm. With racial tensions close to boiling point in Oz, perhaps Leo subconsciously sees this as a way of leaving the prison behind. And that's why he's agreed to meet with Wendy. We'll have to see how this plays out. Down at the M-City entrance, McManus meets up with Officer Phelan, who he's on first name terms with as he calls her Andrea. Has he been on a date with her before? 
Quite possibly, this is McManus after all. Or maybe they're just good friends. He asks if she's heard anything from Diane, who's been away on vacation and was due to start back today. But Diane hasn't turned in, so Andrea's having to do some overtime. A source of annoyance as she thinks she has the flu. McManus steps back, saying, Don't breathe on me, I can't afford to get sick. Something which we've all come accustomed to over the last 18 months or so. He asks Andrea to let him know if she hears anything from Diane, and wishes her well as he leaves as we get a flashback of McManus spilling his guts to Diane in Series 3. Andrea here is played by Sandra Denton, aka the Pepper in Salt and Pepper, and at the time, wife of Oz alumni Anthony Chris, aka Tretch. Not Treach as I called him, that got pointed out to me by a listener. It's Tretch as in treacherous. Put that down to me saying it as it's spelled and not being that big of a hip-hop fan. Born in Kingston, Jamaica on November 9th, 1964, or 1969, depending on which source you want to believe, Sandra Denson formed the hip-hop girl group Salt and Pepper in 1985, along with Crystal James and Deidre Roper, aka Salt and DJ Spinderella. Signing with Next Plateau Records, the group released their debut album Hot, Cool and Vicious in 1986. Originally released as a B-side to their 1987 single Tramp, the group attained mainstream success with Push It, which was re-released as an A-side single later that year, going to number one in three countries and peaking at number 19 on the Billboard Hot 100. Having been left off of the original release of their debut album, the track was added to subsequent pressings following the single's success. Having appeared mainly in music videos to this point, Sandra's acting career was limited to just a few credits, including 1992's Stay Tuned, Joe's Apartment in 1996, First Time Felon, and the animation's Mother Goose, a rapping and rhyming special, and Happily Ever After, Fairy Tales for Every Child, before appearing here on Oz. In his office, McManus looks at a box containing an engagement ring, so clearly he's wanting to know where Diane is because he has a certain question that he wants to ask her. Quite what McManus is expecting to happen with this is anyone's guess. His relationship with Diane is far from stable, and he also seems to have cut out a huge portion of context from that flashback as to why Diane was kissing him. This is definitely something that he has not thought through. Sister Pete knocks on the door of his office, and she's able to provide an update as to Diane's whereabouts. Uh, you busy? Uh, no, 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 come on in. What's the problem? No problem. Hey, uh, I just got off the phone with Diane. Yeah, where is she? Well, she's still in London. I just called her hotel. They said she checked out. Yeah. Uh, you know, her two weeks are up. What, what it, 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 she was supposed to come back to work today. What's she still doing in London? Well, you know, she and Dee Dee uh, were standing in front of Buckingham Palace. And uh, she got into a conversation with a guard. I thought they didn't talk. He was on a break. Anyway, um, one thing led to another, and uh, they're going to get married. Right. <laughs> I'm serious. She's getting married? Yeah. To a Bobby? No, no, not a He's a guard. He guards the queen. Yeah, well, then I can see how they've got a lot in fucking common! Oh, fuck! Who the 
Did she leave a number? Uh, she doesn't want to talk to you. Yeah, well, I got a hell of a lot I want to say to her. Which is why she doesn't want to talk to you. She really feels very badly. Oh, really? Now listen, Tim. Diane Whittlesey has not had an easy life. Poverty, spousal abuse, single motherhood, her mom dying after a very long illness, and just now on the phone, her voice, she sounded so happy. If you need to talk. What I need is a drink. Tim. Don't worry, sister. This is what guys who've been dumped do in order to move on. Cheerio. Sister Pete explains that Diane hasn't had it easy in her life, mentioning her history of abuse, poverty, being a single parent... But Diane sounded so happy on the phone. The happiest Pete's heard her sound in a long time. Holding back the tears, Mamanis takes a seat at his desk. And while Pete offers to be a listening ear, Mamanis says that he needs a drink and pulls out a bottle of whiskey, saying that this is what guys who've been dumped do to move on, and toasts his glass saying cheerio before necking the lot. Okay, so, first off, a bobby is one of the many nicknames given to policemen in the UK. Secondly, I've lived in the UK my entire life and have never heard anyone use cheerio as a way of saying goodbye. And third, this gives a storyline reason as to why Diane has left the show, because, as we discussed at the end of Series 3, Edie Falco was working on The Sopranos at the same time and couldn't commit to both shows. But at least we see the effect that Diane's leaving has on McManus. I described his and Diane's relationship as far from stable a moment ago, but this, along with the drowning of his sorrows, it hammers home just how lonely McManus is, having messed up one previous marriage and lord knows how many romantic relationships, whether those be short or long term. If he takes a moment to look on the bright side, so long as he's still got his receipt, he might be able to return that ring and get a good chunk of money back, or at least get store credit, and if all else fails, there's always Claire. Cut to the kitchen where Kenny asks Adebisi if he still has the gun, Adebisi rightfully telling Kenny to lower his voice. Kenny really is a fucking idiot at times. He asks when Adebisi plans on using it, but Adebisi says that he isn't going to. So what's the point in having it then, Kenny asks. Adebisi reiterates his plan to get rid of McManus, and that using the gun could land him in the hole, solitary, or even death row. Kenny questions Adebisi's ability to execute his plan, but Adebisi says that it all depends on who he can get to fire the weapon and who ends up in the firing line. Kenny tells him that he doesn't understand, something which doesn't seem to surprise Adebisi, as the bell rings and they prepare to head back to MC. Still complaining, Kenny reminds Adebisi about promising to get himself, Poet and Junior transferred back from Gen Pop, Adebisi telling Kenny, much like earlier on, to have some patience. Another example of the change of approach from Adebisi here. Back in the early days of the show, he would see the finish line and just run towards it, similar to Kenny in many ways. But with this plan, much like how he got rid of Nappa, he's actually taking his time and assessing the risks involved as well as the potential outcomes. I don't know if maturity would be the right term to use when describing this new Adebisi, but he's certainly a lot more calculated, and to borrow his own phrase, a lot more patient than he was before. 
Cut to Leo's office, with Leo stood at his urinal taking a piss while McManus complains about not wanting to transfer Kenny back to M-City due to the sexual harassment allegation. Something which at some point Kenny has apparently admitted to exaggerating. So it seems that storyline has been dropped. Saying that he's trying to put a lid on the racial tension and that doing this one small thing for Adebisi might help that, Leo doesn't see what McManus' problem is. He says that even if McManus refuses the transfer, he'll just go ahead and do it anyway, with McManus storming out of the office. Okay, so let's address the elephant in the room. McManus is just stood watching Leo take a piss, isn't he? What's the point in having your own private bathroom if you're just going to stand there with the door open? Also, while Leo ultimately has the final say on matters in most situations, and McManus would be used to that, perhaps this disagreement could be something else that pushes Leo towards the door and decide to run for office. So the rest of the homeboys arrive back in M-City, putting them on four for their group. So yeah, the rule of three aspect has definitely been dropped. And I can understand why, as we discussed previously, about it possibly limiting the writers if characters have to be separated. The three of them are welcomed back by a good number of fellow inmates as Kenny makes his way to his pod, which he's still sharing with Adebisi. You'll notice as well that Junior and Poet seem to have made a miraculous recovery from their skin burns, which Gloria said would take about eight months to heal, and this is all taking part two weeks after the end of Series 3, as set up at the start of the episode. That could be a creative decision to avoid having to cover them both in makeup for all their scenes, but it's more likely just something which got overlooked. Straight away, Kenny notices a horrible smell in the pod as Adebisi welcomes him back and pushes his bedding to the floor. He's obviously just been doing his own thing whilst he's had the pod to himself, and his personal hygiene may well have taken a back seat. Kenny once again asks to see the gun, which Adebisi is still hiding in his underwear. Kenny then asks if he can hold it, Adebisi putting it back into his pants and telling him to come and get it. Which, come on Kenny, you set yourself up for that one, you should know better by now. Cut to the holding bay where Murphy becomes the latest officer to deliver the routine speech, putting his own spin on certain parts of it, and which I think is the best one yet. You three have been chosen to do your time in an experimental unit we call Emerald City. In Emerald City, you're given a lot more leeway than the rest of us, but the leeway has a price. We got rules. There's no yelling, no fighting, no fucking. You're expected to keep your cells and the common areas pristine. You obey the rules, we get along fine. You don't, we drop kick your ass to Gen Pop. Now these guys, these guys are gonna be your sponsors. Help you acclimate to your new life. Augustus Hill, that's Desmond Mobay. Chucky Pencamo, that's Ralph Galino. And Gilliam Tarrant, that's Jazz Hoyt. You gotta be kidding me, man. So three more new characters making their way into MC. Desmond Mobay, played by Lance Reddick, who I'll talk more about next episode. Ralph Galino, played by Dominic Lombardozzi. And Guillaume Terrant, played by Luther Bluteau. Born March 25th, 1976 in the Bronx, Dominic Lombardozzi had aspirations of playing Major League Baseball as a youngster before moving into acting at the age of 17 making his acting debut as Nicky Zero in 1993's A Bronx Tale, which we discussed at length back in Series 3, Episode 4, Unnatural Disasters. Appearing in minor roles in the movies Kiss Me Guido in 1997 and Side Streets in 54 the following year, Dominic made his TV acting debut in 1999, appearing as Jason Vitton in the ninth series of Law and & Order, 
while in 2000 he appeared in the debut episode of UPN's The Beat before appearing here on ours. Born April 14, 1957 in Montreal, Quebec, Canada, Lefebvre Bluteau abandoned studying medicine to act in theatre. Making his TV debut in 1980 and appearing in French language shows and films, Lefebvre made his English language debut in 1986, appearing in Miami Vice during the show's second season. Earning critical acclaim as well as winning the Best Actor Award at the Genie Awards for his role in Jesus de Montreal in 1989, Lefebvre continued to act in both French and English productions before landing the recurring role of Martin Ducamp in the TV miniseries Nostromo in 1997. That same year, Lefebvre won the Best Actor Award at Spain's Gijon International Film Festival for his role as Horst in the movie Bent, before appearing here on ours. So the three men are escorted through M-City en route to their pods, Kenny saying that he's going to keep someone's shoes, and Jazz stealing Tarant's bag of toiletries. Getting acquainted, Augustus asks Mobey where he's from, noting his Jamaican accent, something which will become a future plot point. Augustus asks more questions which annoys Mobey, who asks him whether or not he's writing his life story, which sets up a frosty atmosphere between the two. Ralph isn't faring much better in his pod, with Chucky saying that he doesn't know him, as Ralph explains that he's a building contractor, and has wound up in Oz because a building of his collapsed and killed two people, which he says wasn't his fault. Chucky asks about whether or not Ralph is connected, but Ralph is quick to say that until now he's never been in trouble with the law, not even for a parking ticket. Ralph tells Chucky no offence, a clear indicator that he's likely to cause some kind of offence, but not every Italian-American is mobbed up, and that most of them live normal, law-abiding lives, and that the Guido gangster is an unfair stereotype. Tarant is definitely faring the worst out of the three newbies, though, Jazz pressing him up against the pod glass, playing the school bully and stealing Tarant's money. Cuts him at McManus' office, where he's with Mobey assigning him to work as Leo's secretary, something which Leo has personally requested due to Mobey's skills. Mamanus also notices Mobe's history of drug abuse, something which Mobe emphasises as being in the past and that he's done with drugs. Be that as it may, Mamanus tells Mobe that he'll be part of the rehab sessions, at least for a few weeks, and that if Mobe keeps his nose clean, showing that his sense of humour hasn't been completely lost, then they'll likely get along. Mamanus sends Mobe on his way and Ralph comes in for his chat, but we cut away to Leo's office where he's meeting with Mobe for the first time. Or is he? Warden, this is Desmond Mobey. Okay, you can leave him on, Sean. Yes, sir. Detective Basil. Hello, Warden. Have a seat. Nice little prison run here. Little? Ours <laughs> is the largest correctional facility in the state. And yet the place feels so intimate, mm. so friendly. Now, I have to tell you, the drug problem here is substantial, but I'm not sure how effective an undercover operation will be. Several years ago, we had another narcotics detective come in. Paul Markstrom? Yeah. I knew Paul. He was a good man. And you also know he was executed. Hung by the neck. Those are the risks. Well, I intend to keep a close eye on you. That's why I wanted you working here in the office. I want to be updated constantly. No problem. All right. Come on, let me uh, show you your desk. The place might be a mess. My last secretary left in kind of a hurry. Very nice. I can use this to email Lieutenant Schmond and my partner. By the way, I type 85 words a minute. Shit, I might hire you as my secretary for real. I don't make this bust, I'll need the job. 
My lieutenant, he wants results. What's your first step? Making good friends with the bad guys. So after it worked out so well for them last time, there's another undercover operation going on to try and curb the Oz drug problem. I'm reluctant to call it a storyline retread just because at least Leo has decided to put his undercover agent into a better position, not only to receive updates, but for his own safety as well. For ease and continuity, I'm just going to refer to Mobay as Mobay and not Detective Basil for the time being. There are scenes in future episodes where he'll meet with his partner, but rather than calling him by two different names, I'm just going to stick to calling him Mobay. Back in M-City, Mobay sits down with Augustus asking what he's reading. Augustus seemingly still working his way through the latest issue of Hustler. Asking why Mobay is Augustus Yaga Yaga all of a sudden, Yaga Yaga being a Jamaican term to big up a brethren and a reference to Errol Dunkley's OK Fred, Mobay says that he's asked around and people say that Augustus is cool, but that he's also a man who knows how to get hold of drugs. Augustus tells Mobay that he's been misinformed, and that he doesn't do drugs anymore, and thinking back, Augustus has been clean since his little slip-up back in Series 1 when Jackson Vahew arrived. Mobay asks who he should go to instead, but Augustus tells him to just stand still and they'll come to him, and dismisses himself from the table. Taking a look around M-City, Mobay locks eyes with Kenny, who motions for him to come over. Kenny leaves his chess game, which I doubt he has any idea about how to play, and heads underneath the drug-taking stairs with Mobay, and passes off a small vial. Mobay heads back to his pod alone, but the other homeboys are keeping a close eye on him to see that he takes the drugs. Undercover cops, of course, aren't permitted to take any drugs, and using a bit of sleight of hand, Mobay mimics doing so, wiping his nose to complete the illusion, and gives an approving nod in Kenny's direction. Satisfied with this, the homeboys head off somewhere else, as Mobay pours the contents of the vial down the toilet, and he can probably just take a nap for the rest of the afternoon, pretending to be high, and by the time he wakes up it'll be as if the effects have worn off. This undercover gig might not be so bad after all. Back with Ralph in his pod, and Ralph, somehow, is on the phone to a loved one, saying that he wants his appeal signed and sealed. This mobile phone is very similar to my brother's first mobile phone, which then became my first mobile phone, although I don't think I ever kept it in this type of leather case. You were seen as a right wanker if you did that kind of thing, and especially if you hung it off your belt or your jeans. As Ralph finishes his call, he's approached by Nikolai, who took an interesting proceedings as he was passing by. Nikolai inquires how Ralph got the phone into the prison, Ralph saying that his brother brought it for him. You'll recall way back in episode 2 that Beecher was subject to a full-body cavity search after meeting with his wife. We've never seen one of those since, so either Ralph met with his brother and then shoved the phone up his ass, so far up that a guard can't find it, he swallowed it and then pooped it out similar to how Kenny got some drugs in that time, or the prison doesn't carry these searches out anymore, which with the way this is presented seems the more likely. The two instances of guns getting into the hands of prisoners both came about by them being given them by guards. Saeed got his from Officer Wood, while Adebisi was given his by Clayton Hughes. For Ralph's brother to get it to him, his brother would have had to get it through security himself, and then Ralph do the same on his way back to M-City, meaning that security has become very lax around us. Explaining that phones are not permitted because the prison wants the inmates to use the payphones, due to random checks as well as the phone company giving the state a cut-off long-distance call revenue, 
Nikolai offers to take the phone from Ralph, rather than Ralph hand it in. He'll just say that he found it and no one will be any the wiser. Nikolai leaves it up to Ralph to decide, who then hands the phone to Nikolai and the two shake hands, Ralph saying that he owes Nikolai one in the future. Nikolai says he better take the charger too, and then leaves as he places them both down his pants. With him doing this and Adebisi walking around with a gun in his, are any of the guards not even slightly concerned about the sudden growth in certain inmates' packages? Back in his own pod, Nikolai uses the phone to make a call, although the details of it are a mystery as he's back to speaking Russian. I did try to find a way around this by using the other language subtitles on the DVD, but this part of dialogue is left out of those too. It's a blessing and a curse, really. I was able to piece together part of Nikolai and Yuri's conversations from Series 3 using the other language subtitles, and part of their conversation revealed that Nikolai was aware of Yuri's reputation as a killer, but you'd have to run them through a translator yourself to get that crucial bit of plot. On the other hand, not knowing everything that Nikolai is saying does lend an element of mystery to him, and being kept in the dark about his motivations could lead to a good payoff if we don't see it coming. Transition to an art gallery where we get the crime flashback of Guillaume Turon, which sees him vandalising an art sculpture, leading to a conviction of one count of destruction of private property, and one count of concealment of a deadly weapon, and he's serving a sentence of ten years, up for parole in three. This crime flashback is a reference to an incident that occurred on September 15th, 1991, in which Piero Canata, an artist in his own right, attacked Michelangelo's David at Florence's Galleria dell'Accademia using a hammer, damaging the sculpture on the second toe of the left foot. Claiming that he had been told to damage the statue by Veronese's nanny, Canata was charged with damage to Italy's cultural patrimony and sentenced to time in an asylum. Whilst the damage to the statue was repairable, Antonio Paolucci, the museum's director, commented, The moral impact remains. The world's most famous statue has been damaged. Piero Canata would strike again in 1999, scribbling on a Jackson Pollock painting with Marco Pen in Rome's National Museum of Modern Art, and again in 2005 when, again in the city of Florence, he spray-painted a black cross on a plaque commemorating the burning to death of 15th century preacher Girolamo Savonarola. In this flashback, the first statue that we see is a replica of Michelangelo's David, although we only see it from behind, but you can identify it as David by the sling draped over the shoulder, as well as the tree stump behind his right leg. I was lucky enough to visit the Galleria dell'Accademia in Florence a few years ago, where David is displayed, and it truly is a beautiful piece of art. You can walk all the way around it and take every bit of it in. I can't recommend it enough. If you're ever in Florence, you have to see it. Tickets will set you back about 16 euros, which is, what, about $20? To see a masterpiece like that? Worth every bit. So Tarant is sat on the stairs reading a book when Kenny approaches him, but Tarant doesn't want to talk and tells Kenny to leave him alone. After some more questions from Kenny, Tarant gets up to leave, but his escape is blocked by Junior and Poet, who make him sit back down as Kenny bullies him into offering him his shoes, which Tarant eventually gives them in the hope of making them go away. There's a point where Junior holds onto the railing, which is still as wobbly as ever. I was hoping they'd have got that fixed by now. The Three Stooges head off with Tarant's shoes, and just before that we see Adebisi watching proceedings with a smile on his face. Tarant visits with McManus to explain what happened to his shoes, tears streaming down his face. 
Unfortunately for Tyrant, McManus can't help out on this occasion, because he knows that if he asks what happened, then Kenny will just deny it, and that Tyrant needs either some evidence or a witness. Kenny wearing the shoes doesn't cut it as evidence either, because he'd need someone to back up that they saw Tyrant wearing the shoes earlier, something which he says that he can't do. This is one of those occasions where, and this was something that was asked on the Oz subreddit a while back, you have to ignore the fact that Oz doesn't seem to have CCTV, at least not everywhere. Nowadays, a prison of this security level would be covered with cameras, and even 20 years ago they'd have still had a lot. But for the purposes of drama, you have to overlook this fact, otherwise stories wouldn't go anywhere because inmates would be found out almost instantly. McManus advises Tyrone to call his family and get some new shoes, and asks Tyrone to report anything that he might be able to use against the homeboys directly to him because he doesn't like them either, but in the meantime he should head down to the infirmary and get a pair of slippers. Cut to the basketball court where Tyrone is shooting some hoops wearing his lovely green hospital issue slippers, where Kenny challenges him to a game of one-on-one. Tyrone declines, but Kenny says that he wasn't asking, and it's game on as Kenny absolutely wipes the floor with Tyrone, in which we get a clock wipe transition, a cross wipe, what I can best describe as a caterpillar wipe, as well as a circle wipe, and we can also see Tyrant being subjected to the bully pushover, where someone crouches down behind you and someone else pushes you to the ground, as well as being hit in the face a number of times with the ball. These transitions are absolutely awful, and age the show quite badly as well as make it look pretty cheap. I'm not saying that no one else didn't do similar around this time, but I'm struggling to think of an example that did. Saying that, Oz wasn't exactly a show that followed the conventions of television, so maybe that's why they were used here. But it doesn't change the fact that they do still look pretty shit. Back in M-City, Ryan shouts down to McManus about transferring Tyrant to a different unit, saying that if he doesn't do something, there'll be trouble. Tyrant is just sat in his pod looking sorry for himself, but quite frankly, that's probably the best place for him. Interesting to see Ryan go to bat for someone other than his brother for once, and it seems to have been noticed by others within M-City, particularly Saeed and Murphy. He heads in to speak with Tyrone, but he again asks to be left alone. Before he goes though, Ryan gives him some marijuana, as well as something they call Duster, although I'm not too sure what that is, it might just be a different type of weed. Ryan says that life in Oz sucks, but the only way that Tyrant is going to survive is to show Kenny and the others that he isn't going to be pushed around. And if an opportunity comes along to teach them a lesson, then Tyrant needs to grab it, because he's not likely to get a second chance. Both men leave the pod and go their separate ways, Adebisi noticing Tyrant as he walks by. After an Augustus vignette saying that all the inmates that were locked up in the good old Reagan years are now due for release, Murphy calls for lights out as Tyrant makes his way to bed. As he pulls back his bedsheet, he finds a gun on his mattress. He takes a look around, as well as checking that Jazz is asleep, before slipping the gun underneath his pillow, as we pan across to Adebisi, who seemingly found the man he was referring to earlier to set his plan in motion. The next day arrives and Beecher is back from the hull, but he's ignoring Keller, who's sporting a black eye from their fight, but his nose seems to be okay. Tyrant receives a package from Schillinger, who takes the time to call him a sicko bastard for destroying that statue, and Tyrant opens it up to find some new shoes, this time some brown leather ones, which Kenny leaps up to steal from him straight away. Tyrant puts up a bit of a fight this time and tries to walk away, but Poet pulls him back by the arm, 
Tarrant warns them to back off, but Kenny asks if he's trying to act tough and knocks the package from Tarrant's hands and pushes him down on the stairs. Tarrant pulls the gun from his shirt and without hesitation shoots Kenny in the chest. Junior tries to run away but takes two bullets in the back, as Tarrant fires off seven more shots, narrowly missing Augustus, before turning and shooting Officer Howard in the head. He fires two more shots randomly, one of which hits Keller in the top of his right shoulder, before firing once more. Keller falls to his stomach, screaming god damn it, but seems more or less okay as Beecher grabs him and pulls him to safety. The rest of the inmates hide behind tables, chairs or whatever else they can find, Tony Masters using Fiona as a shield being a particular highlight, as the saw enter M-City to shut down the situation. Saeed hides behind a steel pillar that's far too narrow to cover him, as the saw approach Tarrant with their weapons drawn. They back him up the stairs past McManus at the control desk, and against the glass of Adebisi's pod, pleading with him to put the gun down. Sensing no way out of the situation, a trembling Tarrant turns the gun on himself as we pad across to Adebisi, safely hidden in his pod, as blood splats against the glass. The amazing visual of the blood splattering across a protected Adebisi, who barely even flinches at the gunfire or the blood splatter, ends the episode as the credits roll. Damn, your mom worked quick. Uh-huh. <laughs> Sent your shit to air, man. Get that fuck away from me. Tough talk. No, you shouldn't swear your mama be yo. Good morning, Mr. Backoff. What the fuck, son? You trying to get tough now? <laughs> huh? there you go series four episode one a cock and ball story and oh my god what a final few minutes that was and if i'm totally honest i think that final scene saved this episode to a certain degree and i think the episode's imdb rating is dragged up somewhat due to this closing scene had that scene not happened i'd say this could have been one of the weaker opening episodes that we've seen so far purely because not a whole lot happens Saeed saying a prayer over Hamid's body could have easily been done at the end of the previous series, and I really didn't like Hamid appearing in Cyril's dream. The show tends to, in its own way, stay rooted in reality and steer clear of the supernatural, outside of maybe Ribido saying that he's spoken to God, and even then we're just taking his word for it, he's never visited by a blinding light or apparition of some sort. Cyril's dream sequence seemed to exist purely because they had Ernie Hudson Jr. on set and needed to do something with him to justify bringing him back. 
While it serves mainly to instigate the next chapter in the storyline between Ryan and Gloria, it would have been just as effective had we seen Cyril experiencing some kind of night terror, rather than having this segment which seemed more a case of style over substance. Even if you take that scene away, what else does this episode really have going for it? Miguel is involved with a character who's had very little screen time who then gets killed almost straight away, Shirley returns to death row having had part of her storyline dropped, or at the very least tweaked, and we're getting another variation of Oz having an undercover cop within its walls. Beecher trying to make amends with Schillinger by reuniting him with his son was introduced late in the last series, so I'm fine with that storyline continuing, but its only real advancement was introducing some dissension between himself and Keller, something which we've had two major incidents of already. And while there were a number of new faces in this episode, two of them are on death row, so you're kind of limited to what you can do with them as they spend the majority of their time in that unit. On the plus side, Leo's new storyline of perhaps seeking a way out of Oz is at the least intriguing, while the highlight of the episode was by far and away Adebisi making his move to execute his plan of removing McManus from M-City. He clearly saw Kenny as a weak link, and while he may not have necessarily wanted him dead, and with Junior's death also being somewhat of an added bonus, leaving the homeboys with depleted numbers allows for him to rebuild stronger. And he already has Poet in tow because he himself has nowhere else to turn, having lost his two closest allies. One of the things that I came across numerous times when researching for this episode was people constantly asking what was Tyrone's purpose of being in M-City, and why was he the one to kill Kenny, and then himself in the space of one episode. Him being in M-City you could say is the fault of a broken system. Does his crime warrant being in M-City? Probably not, and to be honest, probably doesn't even warrant being in a maximum security prison at all. But, if not him, then who? Granted, we don't get to spend much time with him before he's gone, but had he not been the one to kill Kenny, you'd have been losing at least two established characters, as whoever the gunman was would have likely been sent to solitary had they just injured someone, but with a fatality occurring, they'd be heading for death row. So in many ways, Tehran is the perfect fall guy. The gunman could have perhaps been one of the background inmates from N-City, but having Tarrant come in and snap so quickly re-establishes how some can handle the change once they arrive at a place like ours, but many can't, and Tarrant is definitely an example of a man who can't. This episode would have ended up being very pedestrian without that final scene, but what we got was an intense ending which looks like it could change the game completely. The continuous siren and drums playing over the remainder of that scene once the shooting started added so much to it, and the closing visual of Tarrant's blood covering Adebisi's pod glass and him barely moving a muscle? A great ending to an otherwise average episode. No deleted scenes of which to speak of for this episode, so having finished with a death toll of six, the highest for a single episode outside of the Series 2 premiere which dealt with the aftermath of the riot, it's time to say goodbye to Hamid Khan, played by Ernie Hudson Jr. After leaving Oz, Ernie Jr. continued to act with appearances in the movie Our Lips Are Sealed in 2000, and as Officer Rico in 2006's Double Down, where he also served as co-producer, with his final acting credit listed as 2016's The Karma Club, also serving as associate producer. 
In addition to acting, Ernie Jr. has also provided voiceover work for commercials for brands such as Johnson & Johnson and BMW, and in 2016 released his self-published poetry book, Freestyle Prophecies and Sacred Ciphers. Away from acting, Ernie Jr. is a member of American Mensa, has studied towards earning a degree in sociocultural anthropology, and is a dedicated family man to his three children and three grandchildren. The Oz One and Done Club welcomed three new members to its private lounge in the form of Officer Joseph Howard, who as I mentioned earlier went uncredited, as well as Tom Farrell, who appeared briefly as Stuart McCullum, and Guillaume Tarrant, played by Lefebvre Bluteau. Post Oz, Lefebvre has continued to act mostly in minor roles, including appearances in movies such as Dead Heat and Julie Walking Home, as well as earning a writing credit for 2008's Inconceivable, and also had recurring roles in shows such as 24 on Fox, Showtime's The Tudors in 2010, as well as 13 episodes of Vikings on the History Channel, appearing in the show's third and fourth seasons. Away from TV and film, Lefebvre earned theatre credits in 2002 for the resistible rise of Arturo Hui at the National Actors Theatre, and in 2006 for The Cherry Orchard at the Mark Taper Forum in Los Angeles. His most recent acting credit is listed as being for La Switch, which at the time of recording is listed as being in post-production. Also leaving the show after being stabbed by William Giles of all people is Louise Bevilacqua, played by George Aguilar. Post-Oz, George only had a handful of acting credits, including the movies Meet the Parents and The Stepford Wives, with his final acting credit coming in 2005 for the movie Stay. George is recognised in the industry more for his stunt work, including working extensively as a stunt coordinator on films such as Die Another Day, Gangs of New York, Elf, War of the Worlds, The Departed, The Bourne Ultimatum, American Gangster, and The Wolf of Wall Street to name but a few and has also worked as a second unit director on a number of movies too, with his most recent stun credits coming in 2019 for Joker and The Irishman, the latter of which he also served as second unit director. His most recent stunt and second unit director credit was for The Sopranos prequel movie The Many Saints of Newark, directed by Oz alumni Alan Taylor, which had its release delayed due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Arguably the two biggest deaths this episode were those of Junior Pierce and Kenny Bricks Wangler, played by Lexington Alexander and J.D. Williams, respectively. After leaving Oz, Lexington relocated from New York to California to train as an Olympic archery competitor, a hobby of his since the age of four. Billing himself as the Olympics' greatest recurve archer, Lexington had aspirations of making the US Olympic team, although I could find no evidence to suggest that he ever did. In addition to his Olympic aspirations, Lexington also launched his own commercial production company, working in voiceover and online publishing. He's also worked as a production coordinator on three Nancy Drew video games, including 2007's Legend of the Crystal Skull, as well as The Phantom of Venice and The Haunting of Castle Mallory, both released in 2008. With his babyface looks and displaying an aptitude for street smarts, J.D. Williams has been somewhat typecast since leaving Oz, appearing in a number of films in street gangster and drug dealer type roles, such as Pootie Tang, for Life, Cash Rules, Falling Awake, and Shelter, with his most recent film credit coming for the 2017 short movie, Severed Film. Not limited to film, JD also has a number of TV credits, including an appearance in the debut season of The Sopranos whilst also working on Oz, as well as The Kill Point, The Good Wife, The Following, The Night Of, 
and in 2016 landed the role of Jabari Morris on Bounce TV's Saints and Sinners, appearing across the show's first four seasons. His most famous role post Osvo, and a role which isn't a million miles away from that of Kenny Wangler, is that of Preston Brodus, aka Bodie, where he appeared for 42 episodes across the first four seasons of HBO's The Wire, another show widely regarded by many as one of the greatest television shows ever made. My episode MVP was a really tough one to pick, because as I mentioned a few moments ago, there wasn't a whole lot to choose from due to a lack of much happening and ultimately it came down as a bit of a toss-up between two characters. Saeed conducting Hamid's funeral preparations despite their history earned him some points, but ultimately I'm going to give the MVP award to Beecher for continuing to try and locate Hank Schillinger, despite resistance from both his mortal enemy and his lover. Beecher mentions about needing to atone for Andrew's death, something which no one else involved with the killing seems to be willing to do and is prepared to sacrifice his relationship with Keller, which he's had to scratch and claw for even to get to the point they're currently at, if it means he gets peace of mind and absolution for his part in Andrew's death. There's no doubt that Beecher values his relationship with Keller, but he values his own soul more, and if losing Keller forms part of his atonement, then he's prepared for that. So for those reasons, Tobias Beecher wins the episode MVP. If you need to catch up on any episodes of the podcast, you can do so by heading on over to Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Stitcher Radio, Acast, Castbox, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts from. There you will find the first three series of Inside Oz, as well as the five Outside Oz bonus episodes, and you can also subscribe to the show so that you never miss an episode, Leave a five-star review wherever you can to help with exposure for the podcast. I've had some really nice reviews come through lately, so thank you for those. And if you have any Oz-related or non-related questions or comments, you can get in touch with the show by emailing insideozpodcast at gmail.com or on social media on both Instagram and Twitter by following the handle at insideozpodcast. Next time on Inside Oz, and with the amount of death we've suffered today, I'm going to have to get in touch with a local paper and leave some fitting tributes in the Series 4, Episode 2, Obituaries. Where McManus faces the consequences of the M-City shooting, Saeed gets an update regarding the riot lawsuit, and Boos Mallis is up to his old tricks again. Only this time he's got a new partner in crime. All of this and more, but until then, I have been Neil Thompson, and I will catch you on the next episode of Inside Oz, the original Oz Review Podcast. Catch you later, everyone. Not down!